a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Kelly, what did you buy me for Christmas? Well, Josh, I believe you got a package for me the other day that I don't know if you've opened yet. I haven't. Is this like a sort of apology slash positive payback for me sending you my gift bag for you betraying me? I can't ruin surprises. You're you're going to have to open the box and find out for yourself. All right. A second unboxing video for our channel. What did you get me for Christmas? I already got it for you when you betrayed me on our Prisoner's Dilemma episode. No, no, no. That was part of a bargain. What did you get me for Christmas? Oh, my God. Um, You know, I'm throwing you this dinner party. Oh, well, that's lovely. I do like to socialize around this time of year. Well, if you like socializing, this is perfect. We've got a few former Indubitably guests stopping by. And we're going to be basically just having a party, talking trash about topics that we've asked them to bring. I have literally no idea what they're going to be talking about. This sounds like a little bit of chaos and a whole lot of fun wrapped into one podcast episode. (laughs) Speaking about chaos wrapped into a package, I think JP is here. Well, beloved (laughs) dub-dub! Of course. (laughs) Welcome back, JP. JP, what did you get me for Christmas? Uh, What did the five fingers say to the face? I don't know. Flap. (laughs) Are you just going to quote irreverent comedic television today? The whole time. That's what we're gonna do. <laughs> that does make this a relatively accurate Christmas party. <laughs> We've got JP who joined us on multiple occasions actually before on the podcast. First talking about the right to die. And secondly, in our food episode where we covered whether or not pineapple belongs on pizza, but did not cover whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich. Fail. If we ever have that episode, we should definitely bring JP on for that. And he was very passionate about the pizza thing. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a right answer. <laughs> we'll save it for the hot dog episode. That Today is not that day. We've also got, oh, I think, showing up now is Isaac and Emily. Hello. 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 Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Sorry, not the show. The dinner party. Welcome to my humble abode. My actual place is way too small to host this many people. So this is my virtual dinner party. Mm-hmm. I like the ambiance. Isaac was on one of our early episodes on designer babies. And Emily was also one of our original releases where we debated veganism, as well as joining us a second time to talk about effective altruism. So welcome back to both of you. This is like a indubitably reunion here. Thank you. I feel welcomed. I'm just so chuffed that so many people have gone through the indubitably experience and said, okay, I'm willing to do this again. It's probably because we told them they could talk about whatever they want today. That is true. We are deviating from our normal path and allowing a little bit of free reign from both the guests and ourselves with the topics that we're discussing today. Who are we most worried about? Undoubtedly JP, right? <laughs> is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. <laughs> well, happy holidays, everybody. That's what we have to say. But for those of you that celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. And for those of you that celebrate the rest, happy the rest. Sensitivity champion, Josh. (laughs) The atheists, boy, it's cold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Happy December. I do typically say Merry Christmas, even if Christmas carols are probably the worst thing that have ever been invented. I think it depends on the Christmas carol. There's a Christmas carol you like? 
Well, yeah, like some of the old, like, if you go back into the Catholic canon, which I, there's not much I like about the Catholic Church, but the fact that so many of the Christmas carols are dark and talk about demons and war and, like, the light of Christ, it's pretty metal. There, I, I'm really surprised to find myself coming out of the gate agreeing with JP, but they're also just really, like, rich musically. Like, 19th century English Christmas carols, that's my shit. Yeah! Like, I, I want to hear, I saw three ships... I want to hear the holly and the ivy. I don't want to hear Santa baby. No. I don't want to hear home for the holidays. Give me like the Mormon tabernacle choir singing like the greatest hits of 19th century English Christmas. And that's like, it's beautiful. It's moving. And I'm extremely non-religious. I will say that my favorite Christmas carol is All I Want for Christmas by my girl Twain. (laughs) Isaac is officially kicked out of the party. (laughs) We're going to need to release a Spotify indubitably playlist for for medieval christmas carols because i didn't even know that was a thing did you think the 19th century is part of the medieval era (laughs) i don't know some of the things that you're talking about sound pretty medieval to me we've already established that josh is not the historian Mm -mm. We, we don't really have a historian but it's definitely not josh I'm not sure what I am. I'm just the reference Google to sound like I know what I'm talking about person. Mm-hmm. The, the very quick looker upper. Mm-hmm. I will say that like every single song on Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas is a banger. I understood about half of those words. I do agree with Josh insofar as like a couple of years ago, like 2008 or so, I looked up the top 10 Christmas songs and I learned that all 10 of the top 10 Christmas songs at the time were written in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, where the very youngest one was uh, Home for the Holiday, which was written in the early 70s. And that was, like, depressing, because it means we're all just reliving our parents' parents, in some cases, or parents directly, childhood Christmases, and no one's actually writing new Christmas music. But now the number one Christmas song year after year is All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey, which was written in the 90s. So, like, there is a later Christmas song but it's still depressing how much of like radio Christmas music is just boomer Christmas music. I think that if you really want to get deep into the Christmas canon, which what we need to do is we need to find some, I don't want to say hymns, but maybe like some folk songs, like some old Scandinavian Germanic folk songs that the pagans sang before the Christians stole Christmas from them. But then how would Isaac get his Mariah Carey? I feel like Mariah could sing a Scandinavian hymn. I'm just saying. <laughs> that seems like a good compromise. And But Scandinavian hymn singers could not do All I Want for Christmas is You. <laughs> so Kelly's, Kelly's on team Mariah Carey. I appreciate that she's got vocal range and that song has got staying power. And it's not the worst Christmas song. Oh, what is the... <laughs> Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney is the worst Christmas song. That is not true. What do you think? Rocking Around the Christmas Tree is the worst Christmas song. Oh, Jingle Bell Rock? No, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree, which is a different song from Jingle Bell Rock, probably written on the same brief. Probably the two companies caught wind that one of the other ones was producing a rock and roll Christmas song, and they did the same song, but just with like slightly different lyrics. But Rocking Around the Christmas Tree is the worst Christmas song. I think that that George Michael song is high in the running for Worst Christmas Carol. Has anybody still not lost Whamageddon this year? You have to avoid hearing Last Christmas by Wham, and I still have not heard it. Covers don't count. I almost got got by a cover, but covers don't count. So you have to go the whole Christmas season without hearing it. Without hearing what? What song is this? It's Last Christmas by Wham. I don't think I've ever heard that. 
No, if covers don't count, then me going, last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but oh, the I've very next mind. day. <laughs> I didn't recognize it, so I YouTubed it when you said it. And so now. I was I'm safe until it. Emily informed me as to what it actually was. No, I definitely covers don't count. Covers don't count. If you haven't heard it yet this season, you're still good. Mm. I am technically not George Michael, so that doesn't count. If you let me share my computer audio real quick, we can ruin Whamageddon for everybody. Please don't do this to me. No, no. <laughs> Speaking of my my accolades as the resident Googler, according to Rolling Stone, the number one worst Christmas carol is Jessica Simpson featuring Ashley Simpson, the little drummer boy. Mm. Can't say I've heard it. That doesn't seem like a good candidate. A specific cover of an older song. I I, I want to hear what's the the universally worst Christmas carol. What not? What's the use, worst performance of a Christmas carol? Oh, they they have. As number five worst ever, the only one that I actually like, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. There's quality. There's a certain kind of quality to that song. I'm not sure what that quality is, though. <laughs> I just like something, something dark. I just Googled the Ashley Simpson, Jessica Simpson, Drummer Boy. They are correct. That is the worst. No, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> I think an unsung Christmas hero is Christmas at Ground Zero by Weird Al Yankovic. Is that referring to 9-11? No, no, it was, it was, this is from the Cold War era where we were all preparing to be bombed on Christmas. Oh my gosh. I was like, that just got real dark. Yeah. <laughs> I expect a little bit less dark humor out of Weird Al. Apparently Justin Bieber sang a song Mistletoe. That's on the worst list also. Mistletoe is like the worst X-Man. <laughs> what is their superpower? They've got a missile for a toe. Oh my God. But they can't fire it. It just sits on their toe. Uh, uh, the writers can do with it what they want. <laughs> okay. The new kids on the block sang Funky Funky Christmas. I don't think I've ever heard that one before, but that that without even hearing the song, that's officially the worst Christmas song ever to me. It's very telling that we went from the things we like about Christmas carols and just started harping on all the stuff we hate about Christmas carols. It's a much easier conversation to have. There's a lot that's aggravating about Christmas. To be fair, I, I think it's hard for for musicians or people who make movies or whatever people who produce christmas content it, it is hard to produce something that enters what i'm going to call the canon like there's a bunch of stuff that like people write and it gets out there and the world goes no thanks like funky funky christmas yeah yeah that's a no thanks but all i want for christmas is you that that's probably here to stay and our grandchildren will probably know that song what i need out of christmas is i need terrible low budget underproduced hallmark channel christmas movies but for sapphics for women who love women like literally just give me like the high-powered businesswoman who goes to the small town she grew up in and meets a like a gruff carpenter who has three sassy orphan children and they fall in love but it's gay that's all i want i want that for you I'm just mad that we have to move so quickly from Halloween, which is the for me the king of the low budget movies. Like nothing is better than sitting at night with a candle on, watching some campy horror movie. And I feel like Christmas just takes that away from me way too soon because I want to keep watching those movies well after Halloween is over. I too am quite frustrated by how quickly we transition from summer to Christmas, and we lose a lot of my favorite season, fall. Not just because of Halloween and not just because of my birthday, but because fall is the best season. And I don't know about everybody else here, but here in the Northwest, it felt like we didn't even get a fall this year. 
So I have some ideas about how we can perhaps preserve fall and maybe push back a little against Christmas or maybe like let Christmas be its own thing without encroaching on fall too much. I don't know what you're complaining about. I'm in California. We have like 12 months of summer and then a week of rain. But we're not used to this. You should be used to what you have. (laughs) We're not used to going directly from summer into like freezing cold days. It was such an abrupt transition this year. It seems like the only thing that you can do to ward that off is like carbon sinks. (laughs) That's that's the solution. (laughs) Well, this is not just about weather. It's about the overall cultural shift in what we consume or enjoy or all of that stuff. So I have a couple of ideas in order to let Christmas be Christmas and let fall be fall. So the first, and I don't think I'm going to get much support on this one, is to ban anything Christmas related until the day after Thanksgiving. Why would you not get support on that? I think most people want that except for the capitalists. I know so many people who start with Christmas the day after Halloween. And you still talk to them? Yeah. Yes. But aside from the fact that you know, people may not be yet ready for Christmas. The stores start putting out Christmas stuff very, very early. So the stores would have to wait till the day after Thanksgiving. Everybody would have to wait. We would let fall be fall, although fall technically, as it stands right now, goes until the third week of December based on the calendar that we have. So this is a concession to let winter in early, like a month early, but it is, you know, preserving some of the season that I care the most about. I don't know. I think fall is kind of like the most boring season. I'm sorry, Kelly. I'm just going to say it. Fall is the one that doesn't have shit in it, except for Thanksgiving. There's so much in fall. There's harvesting. There's cider donuts. There's Labor Day could be in fall. And I have another idea to make that part of fall as well. It's kind of the unofficial start. But my birthday is a big deal. Halloween. And if we go with my Thanksgiving proposal, then Thanksgiving is solidly a fall holiday if we if we go that route. One way I think we could also alter it is possibly by making it so that there's just a pre-Christmas and then Christmas, and there's no other seasons whatsoever. Wait, does does that mean that pre-Christmas is just summer? I mean, that could be part of Christmas, though. Like, late summer is Christmas. Pre-Christmas lasts from December 26th (laughs) until December 24th. I will cry. I was going to say it's kind of the opposite, which is that we should move Christmas to the middle of January because January is objectively the worst month and we need some brightness. Like things don't get bad on the day of the shortest day of the year. They get bad a month after the shortest day of the year because that's when it's coldest and grossest and nobody wants to go outside and everyone has a horrible vitamin D deficiency. Maybe this is a little Oregonian bias. If Jesus was really altruistic, he would have taken our vitamin D deficiencies into when he was born. He wasn't even born in December. That's right. We need to move Jesus's birthday to Jesus's birthday. Which is in spring, I believe. Uh, I thought it was in summer, but I'm not Regardless, this was an appropriation of a pagan holiday for Christian means. So it's already arbitrary and does not need to be when it is. And I appreciate that most people associate Christmas with winter weather. But speaking also as an Oregonian, if and when we get snow here, which is pretty infrequent, we usually don't get it until January or February anyway. So I think we can push winter out a little bit and therefore Christmas out a little bit too. One thing that we'd lose in this uh, separation is like, for instance, Christmas gave Thanksgiving eggnog. I love eggnog and I'm so glad that we get to enjoy it on Thanksgiving. I can't imagine a world where I wouldn't have eggnog on Thanksgiving, and I hate that you're taking that away from me. <laughs> Kelly, why are you? Why do you hate eggnog? Really, what I think we need to do 
is we need to take the Alice in Wonderland approach and start celebrating everybody's un-Christmas. There's 364 un-Christmases every year. Well, on the theme of Hallmark movies, they do do Christmas in July. (laughs) I do like, though, if you're going to push Christmas back, and speaking of Disney, I do like going to Disneyland during the holidays because the Haunted House rebrand to The Nightmare Before Christmas is the best. The Nightmare Before Christmas is the perfect Thanksgiving movie. Hold on. Why do you go to The Nightmare Before Christmas on Christmas instead of Halloween? Well, because Halloween, it just it's the haunted house still because haunted house is already Halloween. But then when they when they go into Christmas, they they rebrand it. Oh, gotcha. Okay, they they change it. I didn't know that. I think it's the day. I think the day after Christmas, they change it, and then they let and then all the Disney adults come and they pretend that they're children. What is it like a like an adult who's at Disneyland? Yeah, well, a Disney adult is an adult human person. At least I assume they're human. That. They sort of organize their life around their Disney fandom. It's sort of like a a disordered kind of thinking where you place a a really false kind of importance on Disney aesthetics and Disney things and going to do Disney stuff. I mean, there are people in in the Disney adult circles who run a newspaper about what goes on inside of Disneyland and, and Disneyland parks alone. They run like weird little feature stories about employees. I refuse to call these people cast members. Uh, employees, because that's what they are. You're, you're not in a show. You're, you're sweeping trash off the floor, custodial guy. You're an employee. I'm sorry, guy who works at Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. You're not putting on a show. You're pushing a button like a person in a factory. You're not a cast member. You're an employee. And they, they just sort of, the Disney adults, they're just sort of unhinged. It's like Dungeons and Dragons, but... Disney. No, but people I know who play D&D can separate their lives from D&D. Disney yeah. adults take something that is not a personality trait and turn it into their only personality trait. Yes! And there's like, there's even, I was, I heard about this the other day while I was, I, right, for, just so people know, I used to work at Disneyland, so I talked to people who still work there. And one of my friends who still works there was like, there's like two rival, like, Disney gangs. <laughs> They wear like biker paraphernalia that's Disney themed and they're like in some kind of weird competition with each other for wholesomeness. And it's just, I guess it's nice, but to me it seems unhinged. So I've, I've known JP for a long time. If you've heard some of our other, other episodes, you know that we've been friends for a while, but I'm curious what everybody else would guess as to which attraction John Patrick worked at. He was in Thunder Mountain. There's no questions to be asked. <laughs> just he does look like he'd be on Thunder Mountain. Uh, it's a small world. I have never been to Disneyland or wow. Disney World. Well, I I did intermittently work Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, but I would not say that that was my ride. Uh, I primarily was housed at the Jungle Cruise and at the Mark Twain in Columbia. Did you do the actual tour guide part of the Jungle Cruise? Everybody does. If you work the ride, you work every position on the ride. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a good gig until it wasn't. <laughs> Steve Martin worked at the joke shop, right? At yeah, the magic shop, yeah. Did he also do the river cruise? They from time to time say that he did, but no. Didn't you used to mess with the Mark Twain uh, controls? I used to make it so that the that the spiel on the Mark Twain would say, that beaver sure feels good. <laughs> and yet not a Disney adult. I have a question for JP. Yeah. It sounds like you're just describing like some of the critiques of fandom that we've been seeing coming out of people making 
fandom and consumption their whole identity. What's unique or or different in your mind about Disney adults than people who get way too into the Marvel movies? I think that the that the problem for Disney adults is that it's completely totalizing. So if you live in Southern California or if you live in Central Florida and you're a Disney adult, you can literally organize the entirety of your life around Disney. Disney adults might uh, not merely attend things at the park. They might also try to work at the park. They might wear exclusively Disney clothing, uh, these sorts of things. And so they really start substituting they start giving Disney in particular control over multiple aspects of their life, not just their consumption. Another thing that I think that is is particularly weird about Disney adults as compared to other types of fandoms is there's a real to me, it seems like an outcrop of like almost like a Peter Pan syndrome where there's like mm-hmm. something unhealthy about clinging to childhood and innocence mm. and uh, those kinds of environments. The the irony is that a lot of the Disney adults seem kind of antagonistic about the children who are at Disney, that yeah. they get in the way of their enjoyment of Disney. They couldn't possibly appreciate it because they're not seasoned experts in all things Disney. It's really, you know, yeah, it's ostensibly for kids, but the adults are the ones who really take the most enjoyment out of it, right? I wonder if we can really say that the children have enough of a sophisticated palette to enjoy the the nuance of Disney, you know? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe the children are wrong. Well, what toddler do you know is going to find all the hidden Mickeys? Isaac's uh, the only one of us that has a real job. He's a doctor. He, like, saves people. Do you think there's something that could be done for these Disney adults? I I think that when we examine fandoms, I think we also have to think about whether or not they provide some sort of practical benefit. I, as somebody who went to Disney as an adult, I'll admit, I was above the age of 12. You're okay to go to Disney as an adult. That doesn't make you a Disney adult. That just makes you a guy who went to Disney. (laughs) I spent hours on YouTube checking out these videos from these Disney adults. And my experience, wonderful. If I saw children videos on Disney, it would have been a waste of time. I, I thank goodness for the presence and existence and the the proliferation of the Disney adult, as it did benefit me directly. Uh, Isaac's on the Disney adult train. Then Kelly, don't you have a friend that's a Disney adult? It's me. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, don't you have two friends that are Disney adults? I have a, a Disney adult friend who I think has a very healthy balance and who kind of toes the line with it. She's a former guest of the show, actually, Jordan. She is capable of liking more things than just Disney, but her enjoyment of Disney, I would say, is almost disconcerting. We are planning to go to Disney during Halloween in 2024 because she scheduled out all of her future Disney trips and who she's taking for all of them. So that's the kind of person she is, which I can appreciate. And I think I'm going to have a good time at Disney with her. But who schedules out their Disney trips that far in advance? Disney adults do. (laughs) Was this any different, like functionally from sports people who might seem on the opposite end of the spectrum, but people that idolize or wear jerseys? There was just a story in the New York Times, not New York Times, the Washington Post two or three days ago about how really intense sports fans, that their, their, their psychology might be unhealthfully linked to the performance of their teams. Isaac, have you had uh, (laughs) some patience based on the performance of their sports teams? Yes, uh, we discussed that before we asked whether or not they've been taking their medications. I'm like, well, first off, who played this weekend? All right, how did it go? (laughs) 
No, but them wearing uh them wearing the jerseys of these players is really not that different from somebody cosplaying as their favorite Marvel superhero or Disney character. Oh, you're totally not allowed to do that at a Disney park. No way. No, you have to if you're an adult in a Disney park, you're not allowed to be in costume. Children can be. So there's this whole thing called Disney bounding where you dress with certain colors or things that allude to a Disney character but are not actually a Disney character so you don't confuse the children who are guests at the park. Is this to stop kids from like running up to random adults? Not Probably. To get dark it here, is absolutely but... for that. And mm-hmm. well, I worked there. Uh, so I can just tell you that uh, if I were to take my child to Disneyland, I would not leave them unattended. Okay. Hey, when you were working at Disney, was Star Wars Land open yet? Or were you no. before Star Wars Land? It was way before. I was there in like the in the 90s and early 2000s. So quite, quite, quite some time ago. Star Tours existed. Mm. Does, a, does a Star Wars fan count as a Disney adult? I'm worried about that because I'm very into Star Wars. And I don't think it's become like a personality trait. But I know a lot of people who are as enthused about Star Wars as they are about other aspects of Disney. And now that Star Wars is Disney property, it's kind of one in the same. So like Princess Leia is a Disney princess. She-Hulk is a Disney princess. <laughs> That's true. I Marvel too. Be, because I keep getting less invested in Star Wars the more Star Wars Disney makes. The movies are trash, but some of the TV shows have actually been really good. You take that back. I keep falling asleep during Andor. I have not been able to finish it or even a single episode in full. Sorry. Star Wars The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars movie other than Empire Strikes Back. And I will die on this hill. I will die on any hill. Well, you should die on that hill because that is death worthy. Oh, no, you guys. Emily's connection just went bad. (laughs) So Kelly's a Star Wars fan. I think I know JP's a Star Wars fan. Is anybody on the Star Trek train our house is non-denominational yeah i'm with jp i was a star wars fan growing up and i'm now a lapsed star wars fan i'm a spiritual but not religious star wars fan i think that the new star trek show that came out is very good which of the four new star trek shows are you talking about uh strange new world okay i was uh, lower decks is great too yeah i love lower decks lower decks is so good I like Star Trek and I like Star Wars and I like Harry Potter. But my wife is just a bigger fan of all of them. So I just feel like I'm not good enough to be a fan of them. I'm not really sure why Harry Potter was thrown onto that list. It, it naturally, it naturally was part of that list. It, it is naturally part of one of those. And I'll tell you why. Because there's an academy. There's Jedi Academy, there's Starfleet Academy, and there's Hogwarts. Everyone's going to school. But at least Jedi Academy and Star Wars and, and Starfleet Academy provide professional training. Hogwarts is literally high school. They don't get any basic math or reading education during their time at Hogwarts. And then they go directly into work afterwards. I agree that the types of training that you get in the Star Wars and especially the Star Trek universe are much more foundational for having a viable career, especially because I would want somebody who is engaging in space travel to kind of understand the physics of it. Well, that's what I like about Star Trek. I I would have to pick, since none of y'all are willing to pick, I would have to pick Star Trek over Star Wars. Just because they make it like, yeah, that could happen. And I I like that. I like thinking in 50 years, that's where I could be living. Instead of Star Wars, it's like, it's magic and lasers. I don't know. I think my heart lies more with Star Wars, but my head lies more with Star Trek. 
I think that's true. I've I've left more Star Trek movies and and TV episodes thinking, but I have left more Star Wars movies and TV episodes being like, yeah, I'm going to be a badass and do that shit too. <laughs> I just want a baby Yoda. Grogu, he has a name. Yeah. No, baby Yoda. And he's Yoda. also like 50 years old. Baby Yoda. I think yeah. my biggest problem with Star Wars in the in recent years is the same thing I had. I read like expanded universe books when I was a kid. I wrote fan fiction. Like I was a huge nerd for Star Wars. But the biggest thing is, and it, it was always that, that they always wanted the stories to tie back into characters in the original canon. Like they always wanted a story that somehow links to Luke or links to Han or links to Darth Vader or Palpatine or whatever. And that always felt really cheap. It felt like in this concept that has a universe a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, that's so broad with so many colors to paint in. And they just want to tell the same three stories over and over again. And for a hot minute, when Star Wars The Last Jedi came out, I felt like maybe somebody had gotten the message that that wasn't the direction that that the franchise would head in that would make it like interesting and relevant. Um, but then Disney came in and was like, no, people want to see Luke Skywalker. So we're going to make this a story about Luke Skywalker and co. And that's kind of just been every Star Wars property since then, which is just frustrating since that's, I think, the least interesting thing it could be doing. I've seen a lot of critiques on especially the Ray storyline that she couldn't just be Ray nobody. Yeah. When she was Ray yeah. Palpatine, it was just buying into this like potential fan service, but also fans uh, overall will not be receptive to any storyline that includes people who are not familiar. So bringing Palpatine back was already kind of a what? And then making Ray his granddaughter is just so weird. If you haven't seen it, the end of The Last Jedi, there's this really powerful scene where she finds this old artifact that's a mirror and she sees herself reflected in the mirror into infinity. The idea being like, you are not anybody because of where you come from, you're who you are. And that's very powerful. Also very, very trans. And then they were just like immediately retcon that. Everybody got mad. She's got to be somebody important. And somebody important means a solo, a Skywalker or a Palpatine. And that's stupid. I hate it. And not only was she a Palpatine, but then she chose to call herself Skywalker. Right. Later, and she could have been anybody. She could have just been Ray herself. Yeah. God. She could have been Ray Picard. I mm, <laughs> No. <laughs> well, that's what I, I, I definitely agree with you, Emily. And one of the places I think that Star Wars is, is just less creative to me is also in the aliens. Like you have an, an, infinite world where beings can be created in any way and all star wars does is like let's add an extra leg or let's put more eyes on or let's you know but star trek i remember one really cool episode where the ship the enterprise was being attacked and they literally could not figure out what was attacking it until the ship moved up and it turns out this being that was attacking the ship was a two-dimensional being and they happened to be on the same plane as it. So that rendered it effectively invisible to a three-dimensional sensors. Like, to me, that's just cool. Like yeah. you said, they've got all these colors to paint with. Do something creative with it. And imagining beings as un essentially undiscoverable or unobservable to us, to I think, is cool. Well, to be fair, 90% of the aliens in Star Trek are just humans with an extra brow ridge. But uh, the other 10% are super cool and original. I like them. All right, that's just special effect limitations, though. It's it's low budget, lower budget than Star Wars. Do you think any of these sorts of things could be like two dimensional aliens could actually exist? Probably, but we couldn't see them unless you moved up a couple inches. Yeah, and I'm not going to. So, 
I think the answer is yes, but it's would be so speculative as to be meaningless. Like aliens, maybe. There's a good case for alien life, but that specific kind of alien life would just be like this is like when people talk about silicon-based life. Yeah, there's an argument that it should be possible, but is it more likely than carbon-based life by even a, a tiny fraction uh, as likely as carbon-based life? I'm not sure. Well, why why is that though? Why is it if they're if aliens okay? Well, first of all, does everybody think aliens do or do not exist? I'd say it's improbable that they don't exist. There is just so much of the universe out there that we can't even fully observe. For us to be the only planet sustaining life, I don't buy it. Like, I mean, yeah, what do you mean by aliens? Some bacteria out there? 100%. Something that's like, flies a plane? Unclear. I think that there's too much evidence that chemical reactions that could lead to life exist in space and in the vacuum of space that it would be very strange for it not to have happened more than once. Mm, okay, well, if we all think something out there is alive, what are the odds that that thing looks remotely like us? Carbon-based, thinking the way that we think, existing in the plane that we exist in, those sorts of things. I think the argument that Isaac made about the chemical precursors for life, really, we only have good experimental evidence about that for life that looks a lot like us, i.e. carbon-based water metabolizing not necessarily bipedal, but like they've got to be have a, a biology that's fundamentally in some way similar to ours. Now, that's not to say other kinds of aliens couldn't exist, but we don't have the experimental evidence of situations that would give rise to it in the same way that we do. Maybe that's a failure of the imagination. There's no scientific way to prove a negative, but I'm more persuaded that there's life out there that's like us than that there's life out there that's not like us even though there may still be both. I feel like the term like us is also so loose. I originally trained as like biochemistry and I was really big on like um, astrobiology. Like that was a focus of mine in college. And the building blocks to create amino acids and uh, ribozymes is like spontaneously out there on asteroids. And we see the reaction would be very likely. I think having a structure of DNA or some sort of building block that's used is is almost certainly going to be the case. Humanoid, I feel like, is, is a bit of a stretch. And I feel like there's no reason that bipedalism would have needed to develop elsewhere. We just had to happen to be like protected enough to be able to develop big brains. I think like us, like a, a, a central nervous system, 100%. Having two eyes and a nose that's a little bit awkward, I don't think so. Doctor Who has some cool aliens too. Are you Whozits? What are they called? <laughs> What's a fan of Doctor Who called? Whovians. Whovians. They should be called Whozits. Whozits. Mm. Well, I've watched. I've watched a pretty good deal of the rebooted series a few years ago. I didn't get super far into it, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, interesting ideas about extraterrestrials on that show. I mean, the Doctor is an extraterrestrial. It feels very anthropomorphized to me in comparison with Star Trek. It's very humanist show, and, you know, it can be nice to watch for that reason. But there's always a drive to compare some crazy new alien life to a giant bird with a giant egg or a space whale or something that we have an analogy for in our world. And one of the things I like about Star Trek that I think is so challenging is the fact that the life in Star Trek 
doesn't necessarily have anything to do with anything we're remotely familiar with. Uh, JP's two-dimensional alien, uh, a giant uh, uh, alien the size of a star that lives in the core of a star, molecular life that lives in a gas giant. I feel like all of those things are are thought-provoking about the nature and the boundaries of of life and alien life uh, in a way that Doctor Who rarely is. I feel it's a limitation. I I've, I think this is true, and I, I don't. I've never talked to anybody about it. I suppose, but it's impossible for us to imagine something completely new. Like as a human being, you are, we are incapable of coming up with something that's not just like a collection of other things that we know, right? Like a Pegasus is a horse and wings and a unicorn is like a horse and a horn. And, you know, all sorts of horses combined with things is basically the extent of our imagination. And if that's the case, could we even conceptualize another type of life that doesn't resemble us or something on this planet, at least in some way. Yes. I think that's what Emily is saying about Star Trek, that they are able to do it in in that particular instance. The failure, I guess you're pointing out with all the other forms of media we're talking about, is that they probably anchor themselves in so much of the human physiology or what have you, because the majority of people do want to have stories talk about them in some capacity to have something humanizing even about the completely strange but then there's the rare people who appreciate thinking way beyond that and star trek is the kind of media that serves that and as i pointed out it fails at that even 90 percent of the time but what what alien on star trek i mean if you thought about a piece of paper you'd come up with a two-dimensional alien what did they come up with that is completely new and and devoid from something that we're already familiar with I'll throw out there that uh, on the topic, if people are interested, Kirkusart has a um, little video on the Fermi paradox, which a lot of us are saying this idea that we think it's likely that there is alien life out there. But it's the paradox in which if life is so prevalent, why haven't we found the aliens? Check it out if you're interested. It's on YouTube, Fermi paradox, and Kirkusart is the one who makes the video. So if aliens do exist, why haven't we? Everybody here thinks that aliens exist. Why haven't we found them yet? Or observe them yet. The vastness of space, the limitations of our ability to see, observe, and explore all of it, probably. I'm pretty sure the Wikipedia article for the Fermi paradox has like 60 proposed resolutions for the Fermi paradox. There's no logical way we are we're not gonna logic our way out of that situation. It's just a question for empirical investigation. Of the resolutions of the Fermi paradox, I I personally am partial. I don't know that I believe it, but I like it. Uh, I'm partial to the one where a technological society is always on a crash course for complete and total self-annihilation. Yes, yes, yes. And we are on our way. Yeah. Awesome. That's, I mean, we're certainly evidence backing of that theory. I think it's the most likely outcome because why would anything good ever happen ever? That's the <laughs> brand of optimism we expect from you, JP. That's well, the JP paradox. No one's ever been able to tell me why it would when I ask that question. So I think it's a good question. <laughs> and now we see what working at Disneyland turns you into. Dead inside. Well, yeah, that's, that's yeah. <laughs> I was not like this before I worked at Disneyland. <laughs> I think if we were to track out the speed at which our technology and our ability to destroy ourselves is advancing versus the speed at which like our ability to explore the universe is advancing, 
I definitely think we're going to reach that destroy ourselves point before we get to the point where we have human exploration advanced enough to go and discover other alien life forms in other galaxies. Well, other galaxies is a bit of an ask, but there's no reason why we shouldn't try to spend some time and energy while we're destroying ourselves, if that is our fate, exploring the solar system and exploring nearby stars. Human space exploration has gotten a bad rap because Elon Musk is a big bag of dicks. And I'm not on Twitter, so I'm allowed to say that. (laughs) I feel like it's gotten a bad rap because so many of the people who believe in it are like, libertarian, crypto-feudalist tech bros and or national greatness conservative types. But I think there's something very liberating and and Gene and Roddenberry-esque about the idea of human space exploration that can make us uh, understand our own position in the universe. And some of the greatest visionaries and the greatest thinkers on space exploration, Jules Verne, Gene Roddenberry, Carl Sagan, were people who were profoundly humanistic and believed not just in space exploration and in whatever cobalt mines on Mars I'll be working in in 20 years as a slave of Tesla Incorporated, but also just like protecting what we have and caring for others, but also investing in humanity's future and investing in the idea that we can do more than we do now and we can be greater than we are now. And I think there's something very powerful in that that can give us a sense of purpose beyond just let's try to keep the earth from frying in the next 50 years, which we should absolutely do, but we need more than that. We can't just be a a species that's desperately hanging on by a thread. Like we got to make symphonies and pursue, you know, individual excellence and fly to the moon. But but why humans? We have so much uh, technology that we're sending through space and collecting data that way. Why does it need to involve humans actually disembarking from this planet? As was said by the song, uh, We Know the Way, involving Moana and Lin-Manuel Miranda, we are explorers at heart. And uh, I think tapping back into that is a very, very beautiful thought. We found the Disney adults on this episode. Right. Do you not think we'd be shooting ourselves in our own foot? It's like every Halloween movie trope is the people that go into the cabin in the woods. We go out and we explore space and just show up on some alien races radar. And they're like, oh, there's a species that we should colonize slash exterminate slash take over their planet. Like, what are the odds if we come across an alien life form that's also advanced that it's going to work out well for us? I mean, we have a long way to go before we have to start to worry about that. Even the idea that we might be able to send humans to Alpha Centauri is like kind of a pipe dream. But we could send humans to Uranus, and we're pretty sure there's no life on Uranus. Certainly not Josh's. (laughs) What if we didn't go out and find alien civilization? What if alien civilization came and found us? Well, then we're fucked. Who would Earth's ambassador be? Who, Who would the first person you want to talk to an alien species be? Okay, hot take. Donald Trump. (laughs) <laughs> because they're going to take one look at that and be like, this is a hot mess. We're just going to move on. Next planet. <laughs> I don't think that they would even come to the planet because of what we've already done to it. But if we are going to have an ambassador, it has to be somebody, assuming we don't want them to retaliate against our violent overtures, it can't be a Donald Trump. It has to be somebody like the Dalai Lama. I don't know. I would say the former president of the United States, Morgan Freeman. <laughs> America's president. America's president. Dang, this species has such beautiful voices. We should keep them around. Can you name anyone more statesmanlike, including actual statesmen? I don't think you can. We could also do a um, 
cut out of Will Ferrell from the L. <laughs> Just put up a poster and have them talking to the poster. I'm firmly in the camp of in the event that there's an opportunity for first contact, what you really want is you want them to not notice us and to just keep going Uh, because we, we don't have in our own history, any examples of first contact that overwhelmingly go well. Nothing leads me to believe that there's any good reason to assume that an alien species wouldn't also that has left its own planet. Hasn't also done so largely because they are uh, consumerist in nature and need more things to consume. And we seem very consumable. We're soft, we're pink, we probably taste good. Oh, we definitely taste good. How would you know? <laughs> I like Halloween. I do think, yeah, even if it's accidental, I think going back to that Star Trek episode, the only reason they knew there was this two-dimensional being there, it was this massive thing, and the Enterprise kept running into it <laughs> and like breaking itself down. It basically just kept crashing into what it thought was nothing because it wasn't able to observe it until finally they figured out oh there's something there we just had no idea how to conceptualize you know a being that's constructed in that fashion before so even if it's accidental i think jp's probably right we we should probably hope to avoid it it's too scary i'm imagining if there are life forms out there that are capable of visiting this planet they would have done a little bit of research and we've put a lot of media out into space that is discoverable bouncing radio waves, what have you, I think they would probably avoid this planet. It's all listed on Google, too. It's very discoverable. We've done the SEO. (laughs) The other uh, nightmare scenario for first contact is the alien abduction scenario, medical experimentation. I I think it's an interesting thought. Let's say that they actually bring you into the spaceship. You are abducted. Uh, You are now one of those people and will forever be considered one of those people. And instead of just doing the things to you, they ask you if you're willing to be experimented upon. Uh, I think the idea of being able to like fully consent to something like that might be worth exploring. So one of the things that I wanted to bring to the table was the conversation of informed consent and whether or not like we can actually achieve informed consent on a uh, realistic level. So one of the things that's like interesting about like the idea of informed consent is that um, there is a thought that you can A, explain effectively what the thing is going to be. I presume that aliens would be able to explain to some degree if they could communicate with us. There is a thought that like you have to understand the complexities of like this process. And then lastly, you need to be able to communicate your understanding of this to somebody else. So. Uh, you can think of it in many different contexts, informed consent when you're going to get like a cyst removed or informed consent when you're um, about to start a medication or informed consent when you're about to have those the prodding that is done by the aliens. <laughs> and I would argue that unless you have the same level of expertise as said alien, I don't believe that informed consent could ever exist. I mean, this is kind of true. Take it to like a more basic level. Think about like the first time you tried food, like a like a certain food that you're just unfamiliar with and your friends are sitting around the table or probably it was your parents. Think about when you're a little kid and your parents, because that's actually probably the best analogy that's easy to wrap your mind around for the scenario you're talking about. When I was a kid, my parents were like, try a little of everything. And I was like, OK, I'll try a little of everything. But then there was clearly some things that were not good. 
And then once you discover that there's some things that are not good, then you know in the back of your mind that some things are not good. And they're like, well, you'll like this one. And then you try it and you don't like it. And you really weren't informed about whether or not you would like it. You were just informed that you should try it so that you could know. Oh, it's one thing to be told that you the only way to know to do something or to know something is to do something. And then you sort of have to try to figure out how badly you want that knowledge. But there's there's certain kinds of, I think, experiences that no matter how much information you give a person, you just can't know till you've done it. And so you're never truly fully informed. It's also interesting in the in the pioneer perspective, too, of like trying new things. I mean, uh, I know it's a little bit of a silly thought process, but like the consent process for like undergoing alien X experimentation is uh, is curious because like you are the first person going through this or at least one of very few. And while it's true in like this, like first human abducted, there is a sense of it true as well in like medicine. You are like every experience is an end of one. You are the first individual in your exact position, whatever that is, going through this experience, and your experience is going to be different than others. It's uh, it's an interesting thought, like that analogy you drew of uh, being told that you should try this or you will like this, when like it really is true that like everyone is so unique and different. And we can talk about probabilities, but like most people don't understand probabilities very well to be able to really appreciate their significance. I guess I'm wondering what valuable information you think is being left out. Because if we tell if we tell someone what the observed side effects are, whether we can explain them or not, and we tell someone what we think the likely side effects are based on the best knowledge that we have, and then what the likely treatment effect is going to be, um, and what the observed treatment effect has been, I guess I'm wondering what else, what other information is trying to, or needs to be communicated for true consent that isn't being communicated. I've got one that's a pretty big bone to pick with medical industry. We don't get cost breakdowns before we agree to medical treatment in a lot of cases. I'm sure if I asked for it, I probably could get it. But I had surgery a few years ago and I had to get follow-up x-rays. I didn't know how much the x-rays were going to be. And then I got my bill and I thought, hmm, I don't know if we needed to look at my foot that much. Do you think that aliens take insurance? Not my insurance. Uh, They're probably out of network. If they're going to experiment on me, I think they should be paying me. At least Big Pharma has the good, the, the good <laughs> to pay people when they experiment on them. I think, too, so much of this has to do with whether or not you trust, uh, whether it's the doctor or you think they're in the pocket of an insurance company and they're prescribing you something you don't need, or you just think they're not competent at their job. And this is kind of, uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. We've already done this episode, so y'all can go back and check me on that. But as far as you know, anti-vaxxers go or people that are hesitant for the COVID vaccine, uh, there's some legitimate concerns there just in terms of, you know, the companies that are putting out the vaccines and the profit motives that they have and questioning whether or not, you know, there might be some ulterior motives behind pushing the entire population of a country to get their product out there. And it's, it's interesting, too, because at some point in the administration of the vaccine, there was an experimental period. And where you define the end of that is kind of your own judgment. But unless you're like a biostatistician, your understanding of like where the experiment ends and where it becomes an established therapy, it's pretty questionable. Even mine is a physician. So when I took the vaccine for the first time, there were 15,000 patient years of data available to me. If you're not aware of what a patient year is. 
that's an important piece of information because like that's how I determined whether or not I was willing to be part of this experiment. And then as time went on and we have many, many thousands more patient years available, hundreds of thousands more patient years, um, the question of like whether or not it's any longer an experiment is has changed. And so I, I think that like understanding data is such a critical piece to inform consent. And I don't know if like all physicians are fully capable of understanding that data to the degree where they could have provided informed consent, at least early pandemic. I'm just glad I took the vaccine because now every time I think of something that I want to buy, uh, Bezos already has that information <laughs> straight from the microchip in my brain. And he can just, you know, put it up on my Amazon front page suggestions. Makes the process a lot easier for me. It's made my my Wi-Fi much better, but it didn't even turn my frogs gay. You must have gotten Johnson & Johnson, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you should have sprung for Pfizer. I hate when it doesn't turn the frogs gay. What's the point? Like, why even be there? Well, speaking of gay frogs, I gotta get out of here. Oh, do you have to go be a gay frog, or are you just gonna go see about a gay frog? Attending a gay frog wedding? Oh, cute. All of the above. If I mean, like, if you could be anything in the world, or if you could attend to anything in the world, what, who wouldn't choose gay frogs? I wish I could stick around for this discussion on the gay frogs, but it's like almost 830. There's no way I could stay up any later. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for thanks for coming to our party, <laughs> JP and Isaac. Yeah. I heard from one of my cats that one of my other cats is doing something cute. So I got to go check on that. <laughs> wow. Did we like throw a bad party, Josh? Like all of our guests are leaving at the same time. Everybody's bailing on us. Um, anyway, thanks for thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks for coming. Good night, Emily. Good night, Isaac. Good night, JP. Thanks for having us. Good night. Good night. Well, Josh, everybody did leave us, but how do you think our first official holiday party as a podcast went? I don't know. Everybody bailed pretty quickly. I thought we were doing so well. I don't know. Maybe we're just not like that engaging, or maybe we just didn't serve a really solid, very spiked party punch of some kind maybe <laughs> i told you we needed more alcohol if we were going to get people to stay so next year more than zero <laughs> no no virtual alcohol everybody could have brought out their own alcohol if they wanted that's true i feel like this episode and next week our new year's special are a lot more social than what we typically do yeah it's kind of indicating maybe we have friends perhaps <laughs> most of the people on the show today were your friends that's true i am the popular <laughs> one well, maybe we'll make more friends next week. We are doing our New Year's special, which is going to be a Meet the Hosts episode. And we get pretty personal and talk about things that we've never talked about before on any episode of Indubitably. Including my cat's name? <laughs> you you want to stay tuned for that one in particular. That is a surprise to all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so for next week, listeners, we have sourced uh, questions from you as well as a guest that we'll be having on that we'll be talking to Kelly and I, and we'll be going over some questions about ourselves, the podcast, and debate in general. A little bit more of an intimate episode moving into 2023. And then when the new year kicks off, we'll be right back with regular episodes on all of the controversies that you love and expect. So if you don't care about Kelly, myself, or our friends, skip these two episodes <laughs> now that you've come to the end of this one. And... Get back to us on January 8th, back to our regularly scheduled programming. No matter when you decide to drop in to our episodes, you can reach us like always at Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Or 
if you are the emailing type, indubitablypodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, have a happy holidays, a happy new year, and we'll see you next year. Bye.